Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambhutasa namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambhutasa namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambhutasa aparuta de sangamatasa tavaraye sorvanta so this afternoon I've been invited to give a Dhamma reflection. There are many questions about mindfulness because this is, we're, we're encouraged to be mindful and yet mindfulness is our very nature. So mindfulness because something we have to do, not something that we are. So we say, how do I cultivate mindfulness? How do I become mindful? And so many of us confuse mindfulness and concentration. Mindfulness with concentration. When you focus on an object excluding everything else. So like with samatha meditation, when you're doing anapanasati, you're focusing on the inhalation, exhalation of your own breathing. So we call that mindfulness of the breath. You know that you're, you're staying with a particular object, such as the breath, the inhalation, the exhalation. So that leads to concentration. So it's encouraging towards kind of tranquility because as you exclude everything other, all other sensory impingement, to the to allow only the focusing on the breath, it will eventually you'll experience a kind of peace and serenity, tranquility that come from from that kind of practice called samatangamatan. Then there's mindfulness satisampachanya, which is embracing the moment and not excluding anything. So, you know, when you're, when you're focusing on the breath, then you're, you have to exclude, prevent the impingement of other sensory conditions that might be present or be annoying. So you find a quiet place in, and a situation in which there's the least amount of distraction and interference with concentration. But life as an experience is much more open to the reality of life which in with mindfulness that includes everything that it has not exclusive it's not exclusive so this is sampachanya in in the Pali word sampachanya sati sampachanya a kind of wide open awareness of the way it is right now, here and now. So you're not trying to exclude anything, but aware of what is happening. And you're looking inward, you know, you're not focusing on objects, you're not reading books or looking outward or listening to in any intentional way, but this wide open satisampachanya allows us to receive life as it as it is experienced here and now, 
It's like this. So it's, notice I've mentioned the importance of this phrase uh, because it's, it's uh, you know, it's not judgmental. Where most words we have, most ideas that we hold to, concepts that we, we cling to are judgmental concepts. They, good or bad, right or wrong, true or false, big or small, you know, so the, the uh, thinking mind is a dualistic function in consciousness. So you can't have heaven without hell, good without bad, right without wrong, male without female, day without night. So just notice this, how the limitations of of this, the, this structure of the thought process becomes very much how we experience life, whether it's right or wrong, good or bad, true or false. And if it's right, then everything that doesn't agree with my view of right is wrong. So you find the kind of righteousness, especially in politics or religions, where we have very definite views about right and good and what's true and that everything false is bad. Because that's the, that's the structure of language, whatever language it might be. In the Pali, Pali language, which is the kind of language that was used at the time of the Buddha, or his teachings were written down in Pali language in Sri Lanka. They have a word, datada, which is translated best as the way it is. It's like this. So in, in Buddhist literature, oftentimes they talk about Dittakada, the Dittako, and as it becomes a title of an enlightened being. You know, so I, in so many references to the Dittakada, it becomes a kind of like superlative word. But actually, it's, a, it's what the Buddha referred to himself as that which is neither here nor there, not this or that. It's like this. This right now, is, it's like this. So it wasn't like, I'm the Buddha, I'm enlightened. I, I, I have discovered the escape from suffering. I am, uh, you know, a, a, an attained human being. The Buddha, you know, wasn't proclaiming himself personally as an as an attained individual human being but pointing to the way it is right now it's like this so when we talk about attainment this word in english you know always sounds like you like on a very personal way i've got to attain enlightenment because that's the way thinking operates. You know, when you read scriptures, suttas and so forth, you, and from the personal view, from the sakyaditi view, from the belief in, in that I, my true nature is this human form, this body, this personality, then you know, claiming to be enlightened in terms of language can be a form of sakyaditi because the personality, you know, a person doesn't get enlightened. It's when you see the falseness, the, uh, the unreality of the personality of the ego, of the cultural conditioning, when you see it as empty phenomena, and you really 
investigate that thoroughly, very conscientiously, you begin to you begin to have that insight into no person, non-self, anatta, no self. So with mindfulness, you know, it's a sati, the Pali word sati. It's, it's here and now. It's not something you, you cultivate. You don't cultivate here and now because whatever you're doing, wherever you may be, whether you're sitting, standing, walking, or lying down, breathing in or breathing out, it's the way it is in the present moment. It's like this. They have a word, datada, which is translated best as the way it is. It's like this. So in, in Buddhist literature, oftentimes they talk about datakada, the datako, the and as it becomes a title of an enlightened being, you know, so I, in so many references to the Dittakada, it becomes a kind of like superlative word. But actually, it's, a, it's what the Buddha referred to himself as that which is neither here nor there, not this or that. It's like this. This right now, is, it's like this. So it wasn't like, I'm the Buddha, I'm enlightened, I, I, I have discovered the escape from suffering, I am, uh, you know, a, a, an attained human being. The Buddha, you know, wasn't proclaiming himself personally as an, as an attained individual human being, but pointing to the way it is right now, it's like this. So when we talk about attainment, this word in English, you know, always sounds like you, like on a very personal way, I've got to attain enlightenment. Because that's the way thinking operates. You know, when you read scriptures, suttas and so forth, you, and from the personal view, from the sakyaditi view, from the belief in, in that uh, my true nature is this human form, this body, this personality, then, you know, claiming to be enlightened in terms of language can be a form of sakyaditi because the personality you know, a person doesn't get enlightened. It's when you see the falseness, the, uh, the unreality of the personality, of the ego, of the cultural conditioning, when you see it as empty phenomena, and you really investigate that thoroughly, very conscientiously, you begin to you begin to have that insight into no person, non-self, anatta, no self. So with mindfulness, you know, it's a sati, the Pali word sati. It's, it's here and now. It's not something you, you cultivate. You don't cultivate here and now because whatever you're doing, wherever you may be, whether you're sitting, standing, walking, or lying down, breathing in or breathing out, it's the way it is in the present moment. It's like this. So this word, datada, 
is, uh, you know, translated into English as, as clear comprehension or suchness in the Zen tradition. <clears throat> they talk about suchness as isness, the way it is. It's like this. It's just using language, not for judging, but for opening to the present moment. It's like this, because at this moment, you know, it can only be this way for all of us. Is it, is it, you know, are we all feeling the same emotion when you're listening to me? Or, or are we all thinking the same thought or experiencing the same thing? On that level, in terms of experience, each one is, is you know, has its own, has his own or her own experience of the, of the way they are, the, the emotions they're feeling, the thoughts that are aroused through this kind of speech, through this kind of reflection. It's like this. So if what I say is confusing, you, you know, it's, I try not to be confusing, but when I'm talking in, in a way that we're not used to, to reflecting, and when we think of mindfulness as something we've got to cultivate, we've got to get, we've got to become more mindful, these are still words that imply that I'm someone who's not mindful, I've got to become more mindful in order to become an enlightened person. That whole scenario is based on sankharas, on thoughts, through reading books, through listening to talks, through the thinking process. So, the reality of no-self, anatta, you awaken to the fact that there's no single person, there's no separate form of self, that these conditions that we identify with as self, as me, as mine, is our conditions changing, are created with thoughts. And the biggest Obstruction, of course, the fetter, the first fetter, sakya ditti, you know, translated as ego. This is the total belief that, that I am this physical body. You know, without questioning. The Buddha said it's not self, and we might believe what the Buddha said, so we add another word to the fact that there's no self. But yet, we operate in our lives always from the Sakya Ditti level, in terms of me, mine, what I think, what I feel, right and wrong, good and bad, true and false. So mindfulness, clear comprehension, Sati Sampatanya, isn't, judge, isn't judging, you know, consciousness, mindfulness, doesn't, isn't, doesn't have a language. Language is acquired after you're born, you know, you aren't born speaking any language whatsoever. So it's a condition that you acquire, you know, the, the concepts, the views, the, the objects that appear in our consciousness, are acquired. They're sankharas, they're conditions, they're phenomena that arise and cease and change. A question has been asked when you're mindful, you know, you're really mindful, do you forget anything? Is it possible if you're really mindfulness really mindful all the time that you never forget. Well, recognize that, that forgetting, mindful that we forget. 
if we're forgetting right now, then it's like this. So even when you forget things, it doesn't mean you're not mindful, it's just you don't remember something that you remembered before. Turning old like this, at my age, you forget a lot. You acquire a lot of memories, dating back to childhood, some pleasant, some unpleasant, meet a lot of people in my life, especially as a Buddhist monk, both here in UK and in Thailand. And then people ask me, do you remember me? You know, so I remember this. This is a question I decided never to ask anybody. <laughs> because then you're put in a position to say, no, they feel hurt or you imagine they do. But memory, you can lose your memory. Like with dementia, with Alzheimer's disease, you lose your memory. Memory is acquired, you know, it's a sankara, put in the context of sanya. So what is acquired can easily be lost. Sati Sampachanya is aware of time and place. It's like this. So whatever state, whether you're sick or healthy or young or old or whatever you're condition might be, it doesn't shut the, the reality of mindfulness out. Now mindfulness with wisdom, satipanya, is where we begin to change from seeing everything in terms of, I forgot something, and uh, I'm, I should, if I was really mindful, I wouldn't forget. And so we create a definite sense of ourself as not being mindful that we, you know, that we, because we've forgotten something we should have remembered. So notice that this is just, you know, elaborating this sense of me and mine. I'm somebody who forgot my sangati. And so it, it's, uh, you know, it's, but we were mindful that we forgot. Then the judgment comes through the language. I should have remembered, you know, I shouldn't have forgotten this. And that's, you know, more proliferating thoughts, judgmental thoughts about how things should or shouldn't be or how you as a separate individual person should or shouldn't be. Are we mindful? Are we still conscious when we're asleep? You know, that's another question oftentimes asked. If consciousness is, doesn't arise and cease, uh, what happens when we're asleep? When we're, we can't be mindful when we're asleep because we're not using our senses. Our senses have no objects when we're in deep sleep. We, we don't see, or hear, hear, smell, taste, touch anything. We start dreaming, then we start imagining. So that's imagination. Dreams are images that we create. And we're aware of, you know, dreams that we take very personally or have very strong views about what they mean or what kind of message they're trying to convey, or whether it's just nonsense. We, we want to find out what our dreams are on a kind of personal level.
So we proliferate about dreaming as, and then there's deep sleep with no no dreams. Because the senses aren't open to the, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind, are not open to operate in deep sleep, but the consciousness doesn't dissolve. In fact, you can train yourself, you know, like setting the alarm, determined to wake up at a certain time. And in deep sleep, you do wake up at the time you've, you've determined. I remember one incident when I was years ago and I was walking Tudong in India. I was at this uh, colony in the hills of Maharashtra, an old British summer station close to Bombay, Mumbai. And uh, <clears throat> it was an international group of people meeting for a conference. And I was invited to this conference. So it was a very nice place, a place called Panchkani, a very kind of posh resort area in, in Maharashtra state. And there was a Catholic, Roman Catholic nun that wanted to have a talk with me. So then we made an appointment in the afternoon and uh, then I had my meal and I felt very sleepy, I went to sleep and I didn't really want to keep this appointment personally. I had kind of no interest in carrying on the conversation with this person. So I fell asleep, deep sleep And at the time that I was supposed to meet with this nun, Catholic nun, I fell out of bed. Like I was kicked out of bed. And I hadn't fallen out of bed since I was about four years old. (laughs) You know, and I was, you know, not quite 40 at that time. And I thought, this is really funny, you know, Obviously, something, you know, this, 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 I couldn't identify with this in a personal way, but it was kind of interesting just at the right time to get me in time to meet with this nun. So I went to meet the nun. We had a very nice conversation. <laughs> But then, like so many of my reflections are pointing to the fact that, that just recognize in your own how you see yourself as a separate person. You know, through seeing, you know, like I'm looking at you, you're separate from me. I'm this physical body sitting here and you're all separate in different positions in this temple. So that's the function of seeing. Seeing gives, you know, you know, you see colors, they're different. Red from blue. You see men and women separate. You know, in springtime you see daffodils, they look separate out on the, in the field. Everything, what we look at, has an, is an object to what we're seeing. And, that, and so they're seeing consciousness through the senses, sentient awareness is, is, is separative, it's divisive. Everything is separate. And it has a quality. You know, when flowers are fresh and newly picked, and then they're, they're beautiful, then they grow old shrivel up and we throw them away because they're no longer beautiful. Now who makes the judgment about what's beautiful and what is ugly? This is a habit pattern of, you know, of being attracted 
to beauty and repelled by what isn't beautiful is, is, is the sensory world that we're experiencing. Just like babies, we, you know, people, when, when people bring their baby, newborn baby to me, you know, we all like to look at babies. So I tell the mother every time, I say, this is the most beautiful baby in the whole world. And the mothers love that. Because at that moment, not just lying, it is the only baby in the world that I'm looking at. And I find babies beautiful. But when you're 86 years old, you're no longer beautiful. Because this is what happened. Once I was a baby, and now I'm eight, this body, 86 years old, is like this. So that's the way it is. There's nothing, you know, absolutely right or wrong about it. And that we should see the beauty in everybody and everybody's beautiful is ideal. You know, it's very generous and grand, but is that really how we, the senses operate, you know, through, you know, the sensory world is in Nietzsche, it's impermanent, it changes. So what is it that is aware of change? You know, can something changing be aware of change? Can a thought be aware of change? Can a memory be aware of change? You know, can a sankara know another sankara and make a judgment about it? So it's consciousness, awareness, mindfulness, that is aware of sankharas. One sankhara can't be aware of itself because its, its nature is to change. So, you know, when you identify with sankharas, with words, with objects of the senses, with what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, and feel, when we identify with that, then we are. We're, we're using avicca, or ignorance, of Dhamma. We're not aware of the supreme reality that's here and now. So as we begin to trust awareness, mindfulness, here and now, And then the Buddha's teachings are very clear about that the five khandhas, rupa, vedana, sanya, sankara, vinyana, are impermanent. So the sentient consciousness, consciousness through the senses, is, is very nature is to discriminate. So in the world that we, the, the world that we believe is our reality, it's all about right and wrong, good and bad, true and false, and all conventions are based on 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 that reality. To do good, refrain from doing evil, is good advice for living in the world. With the Vinna, it's about doing good, being you know, restraining ourselves from just operating from habits, from just emotional feelings of the moment, to restrain action and speech if it doesn't align itself with the precepts to, to do good and refrain from doing bad. So that's the worldly dhamma, that's karma. The khandhas, five khandhas are all about karma, like your eyes, you know, they, one can go blind before the body dies, go deaf, lose sense of smell, sense of taste. 
So the sensory consciousness that's sent throughout through the senses is impermanent. You know, it has, it can't, you can't sustain a sensory experience and kind of fix it as a permanent condition. It's impossible. So when we take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, we're taking refuge in awareness, in Buddha, awaken Dhamma, reality. Supreme reality here and now, it's like this. Sangha, which is the individual being who's practicing in the right way, who's, doing, who's developing the path, the Eightfold Path, not as a personal attainment, not as a person, but as just a natural way to relate to life. In monastic form, it's a very beautiful form to live one's life in because it is, you know, an agreement of so many of us all living together here at Amravati. Agreement to refrain from just following our feelings of the moment and what we feel like saying or or our moods of, uh, that we experience by living here together. But we can be aware of, being, of making value judgments about oneself, about other monks, nuns, lay people, who we like, who we don't like. Liking and disliking is conditioned. That it, it changes. You can't like something permanently. You can imagine something permanent that you like, but that's an image of, which is impermanent. All images, all forms are impermanent. So just the idea of cultivating awareness. Notice that this is, you think you're not aware because you've forgotten something. Where if you were fully aware all the time, all day long, all night long, you would never forget anything. That's an ideal that you imagine. But forgetting is, is also recognized, aware when, when you forget, when you can't remember something, when you make a mistake. And then you tend to see it as some kind of lack of personal awareness. You're not, you're not really mindful, you're forgetful. And these are value judgments. We, we regard, you know, we can accuse ourselves with I mean, somebody who's not really mindful. Now, Anatta, you can't imagine, there's no image for it. It just sounds like, you know, on, in terms of verbal, language, it sounds like annihilation. Because the sensory experience is all about forms. Birth and death, right and wrong, beginning and endings. So you, you know, this is what we call the real world, the world that most of humanity believe in and and operate from that assumption, that belief. It's a belief, isn't it? So with the Buddha's teachings, they're, they're pointing, they're teachings not to believe in, but to use. They're like pointers in the direction, pointing to liberation, pointing to freedom, pointing to Nibbana, 
here and now. So how, you know, when you have directions, then you don't need to grasp the directions, no matter how good and intelligent they might be, but you, you go toward where they're pointing, which is always here and now. Suffering here and now is like this. Desire, sensual desire, desire for becoming, desire for annihilation is like this, here and now. And as we reflect in this way, we have this insight into letting go of desire. We can't let go of desire as an ideal. You know, we, we all maybe like the idea of letting go of desire, but you have to understand what desire is. You have to look at desire, and it's clearly stated in Second Noble Truth, in those three categories. So what is it? Can one desire know another desire? Can bhavadana know gamadana or bhavadana know vipavadana? You know, can one desire know another desire or are they conditions that arise according to other conditions? So then we let go of desire which isn't like suppressing it. We're not trying to annihilate the world, destroy anything, but just no longer be deluded by it. It's a, so samasamadhi is a relaxed release from suffering, from the causes of suffering. It's freedom. So like this reflection, I prefer the word reflection rather than sermon or uh, because like I'm teaching you something. Uh, what I'm presenting, you know, is, is for you to reflect on it. So when I, you know, I don't see myself as a teacher. You have to learn from me as a teacher, but my position in the Sangha is such that I've been invited to give these kind of reflections of how to use the teachings, these profound teachings of the Buddha for liberation from delusion, from avicca, from ignorance. So the reality is there's no self, ultimate reality, Dhamma, is not personal. It's not my Dhamma, or yours, or Ajahn Chah's. You know, they can't claim it personally. But it is reality, here and now, apparent here and now. And that apparent here and now is available to all of us, you know, it's, it's not something that you have to cultivate here and now, it's just learning to trust open awareness. Without, you know, seeing your attachments, recognizing how you're attached to a view, to a position, to a tradition, to, to a self-view. 
attached to views about each other, about the world, about politics. And we, you know, that none of these views are wrong or right. You know, some might be better than others because they have a quality of being right or wrong. But views are thoughts, are sankharas. So they are impermanent, and they're, you know, in this term, empty phenomena. These conditions that we identify with are empty. What's reality itself is conscious awareness. This is reality. And it's not personal, so it's not like my awareness, or I'm aware and you're not as aware as I am, because that, that is judgmental, isn't it? That becomes uh, sakyaditi, personal views. But awareness, consciousness, is where we are equal. Where we're not judging, there's no judgment in it. Dhamma is, is non-judgmental. It has no language. When you let go of desire, let go of sankharas, what's left is awareness. And it has no language. It has, it's not about right and wrong or me or mine anymore. It's like this. So why that, this letting go, letting go of sankharas is, is relaxed, open awareness. And of course, when we try to do that, we, you know, we, we still believe I've got to do it rather than just being the awareness in the present moment is like this. So like in so many problems in the Sangha or in lay life are about how we, I'm based on ideals about how we should be or someone should be. You know, so we have ideals about what a perfect Buddhist monastery should be, a perfect Dhamma teacher, enlightened master should be. We've got all kinds of ideals of perfection. But ideals are themselves creations or imagination. You know, so they have no reality in themselves. They're empty phenomena. No matter how superlative the ideal might be, it's still a thought in the mind. It's still an imagined thought because the reality of here and now is like this. Whatever, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. And so it's, it's say this is like an opening to the reality of being, of conscious awareness, you know, which is freedom. It's not personal freedom like me as a person, I'm free, because still, the, the body is still like this, you know, just gonna get older and die, because that's the way it is. But growing old is, is, is what Sankaras do, you know, they, you're born, you grow up, get old and die, that's the way it is. So this identity, this firm conviction that you are somebody who's going to die is created with thoughts. It's a cultural conditioning. That's what we're told, that's what we're taught, that's what we, how we interpret experience and through the senses. We look at old people and they're going to die. Those that remember Dr. Rohini, you know, very memorable supporter of Amravati died. So what is that now? It's a memory, isn't it? We remember her. A memory is impermanent.
But what didn't die was consciousness. That wasn't person, you know, the, the body has to die. You know, trying to preserve the body so it lasts hundreds of years is, is totally ridiculous. You know, when you get old, who, you, life gets more physically more difficult. So, you know, who wants to get to 200 years old? Or on my birthday, everybody in Thailand says, may you live to 120, which is, you know, a way of showing respect. But at 86, it's like this. It's, you know, it's not, the, it's not such a pleasant experience getting old in terms of the physical realities one has to face. But in terms of Dhamma, it doesn't matter because one no longer identifies with the physical form. It's supposed to get old. It's doing what it's supposed to do. It's a condition that begins and will end in the future. So that means there's no sorrow, no grief involved in, my, in the fact that we're going to die. Death becomes another, you know, frightening experience for most people. What happens when you die? What do Buddhists believe happens when, you, when somebody dies? And then the temporal, the typical reaction is reincarnation, you get reborn in some other form. What gets reborn? Is there a soul? Is there a separate self that lives after death? But as we examine the, the khandhas, in terms of anicca, dukkha, nata, in terms of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self, as all empty phenomena, they're not personal souls, no memory, no feeling, it's, there's no permanent personality. If you notice just in a day time experience how your personality changes from when you get up in the morning to meetings and duties and meditation periods and people you talk to and news that you hear, your moods change. Your personality changes according to the conditions that present themselves in the present. But what doesn't change is awareness. There's awareness, it's like this, changing is changing. And each is, is witness to, it's, it's the way of all sankharas. Sape, sankara, anicca, all conditions are impermanent. Sape, tama, anatta, dhamma is non-self. So this non-self is freedom. Being some person, say being somebody, being attached to the physical body, being attached to social position or anything, any sankhara, is bondage. You know, you're binding yourself to suffering. So this kind of ignorant binding oneself, attaching oneself to unsatisfactoriness is avicca or ignorance of Dhamma. So we take refuge in Dhamma here and now. What does that really mean in terms of the reality of now? It's awareness, isn't it? It's like this. And, you know, just from my own experience, being, you know, having lived through so many years as a Buddhist monk, both here in the UK and in Thailand, you know, you, you have to experience all kinds of, of uh, praise and blame, success and failures, 
they just for the nature of phenomena. It doesn't mean that when you become a monk, you know, everything becomes, you know, you've got so much barami that life is just a bed of roses, a bowl of cherries, just happiness, ha ha ha, till death. Now that, it's impossible for that to, to be, take place. That's an imagination. But the vipaka kama, the result of being, of birth is that it gets old, gets sick and dies. And that which is aware of karma, of the aging process, of sickness, of loss, of failure, of criticism, of blame, is like this. So this was emphasized over and over again by Lung Po Chao and you know, those first ten punsos I spent close to Ajahn Chao in Thailand. You know, it sunk in. So when I was invited to come to England, you know, I, I felt confident in my practice. But as a Buddhist monk living in a non-Buddhist country, I was not confident at all. I didn't know what was going to happen. My, I never, I'm not, you know, not a native Brit, new place, don't know, only know one person in England, George Sharp. And, you know, on a personal level, I felt, you know, what the, what's going to happen to me, you know, and, you know, who's going to give food? Are we to bind about barefoot on the streets of London? You know, how can you adapt the Vinaya to, to a totally different climate, different culture? Worried about how to, you know, about not being strict enough, not being true to the tradition, very idealistic. And I became, at one time I convinced myself I'm not going to do this because too many unknown factors, too much to doubt, too much to be unsure of, to throw myself into a situation. But then the practice was being aware of that. I became aware of my own doubts and worries, tendency to worry, tendency to cling to con conditions, tendency to create problems about life in Thailand or England or wherever. You know, is it going to change? I've created enough problems for my life in Thailand. On a, you know, grasping my own views and opinions and likes and preferences. The same thing's going to happen in England. But this awareness of it, you know, and this trust in Dhamma, this faith in the Dhamma, taking refuge in the Dhamma, was what I trusted in. So this word Dhamma is just a word, but it, it you know, what does it mean? You know, was it, what's the reality of Dhamma? Is it some kind of metaphysical concept that we must believe in? If it's apparent here and now, then it's, it's here and now. It's not something separate that we have to find or something so high that we're not ready to reach that high or realize such refinement. But it's like this for each one of us. Santiriko Dhamma, apparent here and now, is a very good translation in English. Akariko Dhamma, timeless. Try to imagine timelessness. You can't do it. There's no image for it. With anatta, no self, there's no image for anatta. You know, if I'm not the body, if I'm not the khandas, then I'm nobody. So we tend to, you know, that's how the, the thinking mind operates. I'm, I'm somebody or I'm nobody. But the Buddha made it very clear that it's not annihilation. It's not 
believing in eternal life in a personal way, you know, where we attain nibbana as a person, as a separate soul that lives happily for eternity. Is eternity time or is eternity here and now? Timeless, akalikadama. These are th questions to ask yourself, to clarify, you know, even the words that we use, the chants that we use in this tradition have much more importance to investigate there. This is what Buddha Dhamma is, it's about investigating. It's not about grasping Buddha's words or Buddha's teachings and believing in them. The whole beauty and essence of the teachings is the directions to be realized individually by the wise, So I offer this as a reflection for this afternoon.